Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. Today's guest is Professor David Strain, who's a senior clinical lecturer at the University of Exeter Medical School and an honorary consultant in medicine. Since March 2020, David has been heavily involved in the COVID-19 response in the UK, in particular focused around risks for healthcare workers and on long COVID. David's part of the NHS, the National Health Service's Long COVID Task Force, and he's presented to the Parliament uh, to Parliament at the all-party parliamentary group meetings on long COVID. Uh, we've also been really fortunate to work with David to launch a study on the role that genetics plays in long COVID uh, with funding from Innovate UK uh, to send a number of at-home test kits around 2,000 people with long COVID and 1,000 people that have had COVID and, and don't develop long COVID to try to understand the role that genetics might play. So with that very long introduction, I'm really excited to dive into long COVID today with David go into his career, how he got involved, and also how our understanding of long COVID has evolved over the past 18 months and what the future might hold. So David, welcome and thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, I'd love to kick off actually just by going back to March 2020. How did you first learn about COVID-19? Where were, where were you? What were you doing? What did you think at the time? And, uh, and how did all this unfold for you? So, I mean, COVID-19 hit the UK really in February, but I was aware of it from um, end of January when I started watching the reports in Lombardy. Um, one of the many roles I've played is I work with the British Medical Association. Um, and at the time, I was chair of the Academic Staff Committee. And part of that is um, being aware of what's going on in the healthcare and feeding back to our colleagues. So, very early on, we were keeping an eye on it. And um, I do remember the first webinar I went to that was broadcast from China at 3 a.m. and having to set an alarm to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning to hear all about this new virus that we were hearing different reports from either it's killing millions of people right down to, well, it's just a bad case of the flu and people will be um, all right as long as they just wrap up warm and stay out of um, closed environments. Uh, and actually, it was interesting seeing it come along. Then in the southwest, so I work down in Exeter, which is a, a rather mature population. Actually, it's the, the oldest population in the country in, in, in England. Um, and the demographics represent what the rest of the country is going to be looking like in about 10 to 15 years. So we have a far more mature population. And one of the things that we know now is that the single strongest risk factor for getting acute COVID is age. And in the Southwest, we re rapidly realised that we had two particular demographics. So we had the, the younger patients, these with the cytokine storm, those that we were seeing the headline story about in, um, in Lombardy and other regions around the world. However, the vast majority of patients in hospital were the elderly multimorbid, um, lots of comorbidities, the sorts of patients that we as geriatricians were absolutely typically used to looking after. And so we very rapidly separated our COVID response team into the respiratory consultants looking after the younger, fitter patients. Actually, in our hospital, it was about one in five patients that they would be looking after. And then the other 80% came to a geriatrics ward, uh, uh, healthcare for older people with expertise in multimorbidities because we realised that COVID was just one of the things that was affecting these people and it made everything else worse. So 
So people coming in with um, COVID, their heart failure would be worse. They would have this renal impairment. They're, everything up to the dementia, the delirium. I mean, the delirium that went with it acutely was absolutely terrible. Um, and as a result, for the first five or six months, I spent my time effectively learning everything there was to know about COVID, participate in all those studies, and just generally working as a COVID consultant with the elderly that gradually got younger and younger as we went through. But that notwithstanding, we were spending all of our time learning about this new disease. What was that like, uh, learning about a new disease over a period of 12 months? You've spent uh, the majority of your career in, I believe, type 2 diabetes and, and you know, geriatrics more generally, if you've mentioned. What was it like to jump back on the learning curve of something brand new and in such a rapid period of time and in a moment of crisis, really? It was simultaneously really quite exciting because we realized that there was new data coming out on a daily basis and we were all trying to keep up with it. We were all figuring out, I mean, the ACE2 enzyme, if you'd have asked any physician in 2019 what the ACE2 enzyme does, they would have gone, well, it's probably related to the ACE1 enzyme and that would be as far as you get. Yeah, we now have a full detailed understanding of the ACE2, what it does, how it defends our body. Um, how it works on the mitochondrial assembly receptor and therefore was causing these fatigue in these elements, how it's found in other organs. So it's found in the pancreas and we were seeing people with effectively with type one diabetes um, as a result of COVID because it, the pancreas was being undermined. We found out that it causes these microemboli in the small blood clots um, that was causing renal failure and causing COVID toe. I mean, it's a term that didn't even exist. And all of a sudden we have COVID toe. Um, and we were also seeing that it's really odd neurological symptoms. Uh, and, and this is actually where we started to realise that this was more than just a respiratory disease. Um, it, the key presenting feature was a lack of sense of smell. And although we we know this, this anosmia is is now second nature to us all, it was only around March, April time that people started recognising this even as a symptom. Um, and it was end of April before it was added to the, the the triad of a fever, a cough and shortness of breath that helped us to recognize it. So there was an excitement to all of this. But there was also a fear. Um, we were hearing stories of people, well, our age, they were being affected. They were really badly affected by this virus, that they were being knocked out. We had patients on ITU for 19 days. And put that into perspective, for a typical pneumonia, for somebody our age, you'd be expect to be in ITU in a worst-case scenario for two to three days. We were seeing 35 and 40-year-olds going to ITU for close to three weeks and coming out with some quite major debilitation um, that was brought about by this disease. And that was one of the main drivers that COVID-19 took over everything. Had this have been something like flu or another pneumonia, where people have an average length of stay of two to three days, that wouldn't have been a problem. But the average length of stay in the first wave of this was running at 19 days, which slowly dropped down to about 17 or 16 days. But either way, we were still seeing people in hospital for four or five times longer than you'd normally expect for a pneumonia. And how much has that changed in the last six months since um, the majority of the population has been vaccinated? I, I know the number of people testing positive, at least recording this now in late July, is is spiking here in the UK. But 
I get the impression I'm I'm not working uh, in the in the trenches like you are, but I get the impression that there's a lot less severe cases coming through. So while the number of cases is higher, the vaccines have resulted in enormous positive impact on the severity of cases. Is that is that right, or is that are you seeing something different? Well, absolutely. Yeah, the disease itself has effectively changed. I mean, it it started changing in December when we saw the um, the alpha variant, or as it was called then, the variant from Kent coming through. But that was also the time that the vaccine started hitting. So we saw numbers going up. We saw younger people getting sick. But at the same time, we had approval for the, the Pfizer vaccine first, followed rapidly by the AstraZeneca vaccine, so that we could then start tackling um, the disease. We also heard about the, the benefit of dexamethasone. We'd learned how to be pro-nursing people, so nursing people on their front, which was um, keeping their lungs clear. And we had what was undoubtedly the most rapid uh, and successful vaccine program um, that this country, at least, has ever seen. And actually, that's a real testament to the people in the NHS, because many of the elements before the vaccination Although they were called the NHS Test and Trace and the um, the NHS uh, app, none of them were NHS. They were all done by private companies. The vaccine was just handed over to the NHS. And um, this is basically what we've done. Uh, primary care have been doing vaccines for years. And we've seen the, the fastest rollout of vaccines ever. Um, as you say, we've got about 70% of the adult population is now double vaccinated. Um, about 88% of the population has had their first dose of a vaccine. And that is changing the disease as we know it. We now have the Delta variant. Uh, we've had brushes with the Beta and the, the Gamma variant and um, talk about a Lambda variant on the way. But actually, in practice, what we're seeing is thousands of people being diagnosed with COVID but very few of those translating into hospital admissions. And if they are admitted to hospital, it's a much shorter admission. It's uh, uh, two to three days before we can um, get them back on the feet and get them out again. It's um, a very small number needing anything more than high-flow nasal oxygen. Um, a few going to ITU, but only a few. To put it into perspective, at this moment in time, despite a prevalence that it's the highest that it's ever been in Exeter, we've only got 18 patients in hospital. Um, at the peak of the, the previous wave that was actually not as many cases uh, um, as we have in the population. We were lo- running with 70 or 80 patients a day coming through and we only have 18. So this is a testament to how effective the vaccine has been. It's changing the disease. The big fear now is that we just heard um, in the UK on the 19th of July, we have this um, branded Freedom Day when um, all restrictions were dropped. Now, um, that's been a very mixed response. Yes, there has been freedom for an entire group of the population, although, to be honest, I'm not quite sure what the freedom was. It's a freedom to go to a nightclub, and from what I see, that's just about it. (laughs) But there is a big population of vulnerable adults that are now very worried that, are we going to see cases climbing again? Are we going to start seeing vaccine mutations, uh, vaccine resistant mutations? Are we going to see another change in the disease? And clearly, these are things that we're all worried about going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about long COVID. Uh, what point did that come onto your radar early in the process? And, and what did you initially think about it? And how long did it take for 
you to realize that this was something you wanted to focus on and and then for the wider medical community to get onto it. Cause I, it was, if I remember from my perspective, there's a very long time where uh, it wasn't really recognized and it wasn't um, being given the attention from the scientific and medical community as it, uh, as it probably should have early on. I'm curious when you first heard of it and, and what that journey looked like for you. Yeah, so it's a, it's actually very interesting that you you bring in long COVID at the point that we talk about thousands of people being diagnosed but not getting really sick. And actually, it's the not getting really sick that got me interested in this. So in a pre-COVID world, I was the physician that supported the chronic fatigue service and myalgic encephalomyelitis service. Uh, I was already there going through these patients on a regular basis. And we were actually planning some studies, trying to get an understanding of why people are left with a disease, uh, left with a condition that leaves them fatigued. It leaves them with generalized aches and pains. It um, effectively gives them brain fog. And with that, I'm talking about CFS and ME, not long COVID. And for about 15 to 20 years, people have known about CFS and ME, but it's never had the right research basis. Um, so I was already thinking along those terms um, a while ago. And throughout the pandemic, I did continue our engagement with the CFS and ME service. And we did start to notice many patients who previously had CFS suddenly were presenting back to the clinic saying that after a very mild dose of COVID, all of their symptoms had relapsed. So much so that um, we, we put on our referral form we started asking the GPs to test for has this person had COVID when they referred them to the CFS service. Uh, and this is going back to June, uh, June 2020. So this is a long time before long COVID was being widely recognised. And I say a long time. Um, actually, the first tweet with the words long COVID and came around at the end of May. Uh, that was uh, Eleanor Morego, who was a, an archaeologist fellow working at UCL, but originally from Lombardy and had gone home during the, the pandemic to look after her family and been struck down with it. So in June, we started to see that people with CFS were having exacerbations and we were starting to get a few new referrals coming through. And we raised this within the British Medical Association and um, the end of June, we sent a survey around to all the healthcare professionals, uh, sorry, to all the doctors who've been working through the pandemic and we recognised at that point that doctors were three times more likely to get COVID than the general population. So we put a question in, just a, almost a, a question, a feeler that said, um, we asked, um, have you had COVID? Yes or no. If you have had COVID, what was your recovery period like? Um, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks or longer than eight weeks. Remember, this is in July. So in the UK, we've only really had the, the virus for about three to four months at that point. And we were staggered to see that 20% of doctors were telling us that more than eight weeks later, they were still either off sick, or they were taking annual leave, or they were um, not able to function properly, they were on reduced hours, um, or had other mitigations put in place. So that's really where we became interested, or where I realize that we've got a disease here that's affecting our healthcare workers tremendously um, and it's affecting our CFS and ME patients tremendously and most importantly did not appear to be related to the severity of the illness and um, there were people who were getting only very very mild symptoms from their original COVID infection 
but we're actually then being left with debilitating fatigue and, and pain in all of their joints going forward. So, and so that's where we started talking about it and started raising awareness of it. What is it uh, now? It's been more than a year that uh, that some people have had it. I'm curious whether you know, and I know you're not an epidemiologist, but you're so steeped in the space that you you probably do know. What does the distribution look like in terms of if we if we say almost everybody probably at this point has either uh, ha- has been exposed or or let's take the whole population of people who have been exposed? What proportion of those people go on to have long COVID-like symptoms for four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, longer than 12 weeks, longer than six months. I'm, I'm really interested in how many people end up um, affected by this for effectively indefinitely at this point versus two, three, four, and not to minimize two, three, four, six months. It's an incredible amount of time and, and wouldn't wish that on anyone, but I'm, I'm just interested in what the distribution looks like and, and how many people recover from this over what period of time. So um, it's a really important question, Patrick, and um, we see different results from different parts of the world um, around this. Uh, and a big part of that is depending on how it's recorded. So in Belgium, they followed up a, a population who had been admitted to hospital um, and then uh, four times as many people who weren't admitted to hospital, but also tested positive for COVID. And actually about half of those who were not hospitalized, but were positive tests, hardly had any symptoms whatsoever. And they were more tested positive because of being family contacts. So what they suggested was 81% of people who'd been hospitalized had some residual symptoms at um, six months. For those who were not hospitalized, 55% of them had some residual symptoms. But the only thing there is it didn't really quantify how bad those symptoms were. I mean, what as residual symptoms? Are we talking a bit short of breath, remembering that the entire country has been in lockdown and people would be less fit, they would be uh, more difficult to socialise and engage just because of the environment? So um, it could be as high as 55%. The original population from Wuhan that they followed through, 75% of them had some derangement in um, biochemical measures at 12 months. So there were some patients with some renal impairment. There were patients who had um, more rapid cognitive decline and um, elements like that. Uh, So there are other bits and pieces that are um, going on. When we come to the England figure, we've got a very different way of analysing it because it's all based on self-reported symptoms. So currently, from the Office of National Statistics, we have 7% of the UK population has tested positive for PCR. Um, And that in itself is a really important um, consideration, that only 7% of the UK has tested positive for COVID. So all of these deaths and all of these cases of long COVID that we are hearing about is based on a very small proportion. They estimate that actually there's a a total of 10% of the population have had it, and the other 3% just didn't get a test at the right time. So amongst those... 22% of the population have been left with some degree of long COVID symptoms beyond 12 weeks. And these are the latest figures from the Office of National Statistics. And again, it's a much lower number than they saw in Belgium. But again, this has to be self-reported. And therefore, the symptoms that they report are far more likely to be symptoms that are adversely affecting their quality of life. 
So minor symptoms, you know, still not having your full sense of smell back, whereas it would be a irritation. It would be clearly devastating if you're a sommelier and you need your taste your wine on a regular basis. For the vast majority, though, it is nothing more than a I can't enjoy my coffee the way I used to. Um, so 22 percent of the population appear to have been left with long COVID symptoms. Now, there is an age gradation within the UK. So that if you look at the population age between 16 to 29, that's about 15 percent of the population have got long COVID symptoms. And as you go to the 30 to 50, that's 23 percent from 50 to 70 is 26 percent. And over the age of 70, it's around 27 percent. So there is this age gradation. However, what we can't say in that is whether the process is different in the different age groups or what my own personal opinion is, is that what we're looking at is a difference in biological reserve. If you knock 30% of your capacity off, then you're 21 and you can get rid of 30% of your capacity and still get away with everything because, you know, you've got lots of spare capacity. Whereas if you lose 30% of your capacity and you're 70, then that will be a lot more noticeable. You'll realise there's lots of stuff that you can't do the way you did before. So there are the sorts of numbers looking at 12 weeks. We estimate that there's about twice the same number of got symptoms at five weeks. And about half the patients who've got symptoms at five weeks get better over the first um, three months since their disease. What we are estimating, and I'm stressing estimating, remember that we are only just beyond 12 months of this in the UK, and we've got no idea what the impact of the alpha variant, let alone the delta variant, will be long term. But we are estimating that at least half of those who have symptoms at three months will get better over the next 12 months. Beyond 12 months, it's anybody's guess. If this is a condition that's very similar to chronic fatigue syndrome, we could end up with people who are still symptomatic for decades ahead of us. Alternatively, if this is more like the the fatigue that we saw after the, the 1980 flu, then actually the vast majority of people who had that, about 95% of people, got better within three years. And only a very small proportion, uh, 5% of those who were affected, end up with the long-term consequences, the um, uh, myalgic lethargica, which is, um, or encephalitis lethargica, which is a term that was used to describe that post-viral fatigue from the 1918 pandemic. When it comes to severity, there is a quite clear grades across it. Um, but at least a third of people who are affected by long COVID report that this adversely affects their ability to work, to go with their education. And about two thirds say that it's dramatically affecting their family life. And, and this is a consequence of a disease. Now, this seems to be the case irrespective of the age. If you are let, struck with this, then a third of the 16 to 20 year olds will be affected with an inability to focus in school, sixth form, college, apprenticeships or their jobs. Or, and that is a, a profound effect. And those numbers perpetuate right through all the age groups. That's an amazing set of stats. Thank you. I, th- I think it clears it up for me. So if I break down the numbers correctly, just to play it back, it sounds like in the UK, about 10% of people are likely to have been affected and 20, 20 odd percent, depending on 
uh, 25% in the highest age bracket, maybe closer to 15% in the lowest age bracket, then go on to develop long COVID-like symptoms for a period of 12 weeks or longer. So if we were to extrapolate to the whole population, that's a, it's a truly tremendous number of people that could be affected by this uh, if, if you know, there weren't vaccines and other kinds of approaches to dampen the effects. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're looking at this moment in time in the UK, there are probably about a million people who are affected by long COVID. There's probably about 697,000 um, that are adversely affecting their ability to work or to get on with their home life or to um, have things normal. We know that there are about 400,000 people who've had this condition for 12 months already. Um, even within the health service, there's about 122,000 healthcare workers, um, doctors, nurses, therapists, um, the, 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 the staff who maintain the, the cleaning and the, the hotel services is called now, providing the food and all of those staff. 122,000 of them are currently off work as a result of long COVID. And these numbers are truly staggering going forward, particularly as it's only 10% of the population that's been vaccinated. Uh, so, yeah, sorry, the, only 10% of the population that has had this. Um, 80% being vaccinated in one way, shape or form is great. But what we still don't know is if you are exposed to COVID and you get enough to trans, uh, to generate um, the virus, would you then still be at risk of long COVID even if you are vaccinated? And the data are just coming through on this. There's an estimate that if you catch COVID despite being vaccinated, yes, you are 95% less likely to go into hospital. Your chances of dying have been reduced dramatically. But it appears that it's only reduced your risk of long COVID by about a third. And this is the biggest worry as we've come out of lockdown not of hospitals being overwhelmed, not of people dying in the, the extent it was. But if we're looking at literally hundreds of thousands of people being infected per day, are we then looking at a, a total caseload of long COVID of four or 5,000 brand new cases a day being created by this strategy? And this is something that we are really concerned about going forward. Absolutely. And, and maybe a good segue into what actually is happening biologically to, to the extent that we know. I know this is the easy question to ask, a very hard one to answer. What do we know today about what causes long COVID and, um, and, and what is there that's still an open question? So the, there's lots and lots of theories, lots and lots of other things going on that are being um, reported. The, the only things that we know for certain is that people who get long COVID are those that are more likely to have had a really strong antibody response to their initial infection. So these are the data from Belgium where they actually measured the antibody titers of people who got through the COVID. And there was a t very, very tight association that it was the highest antibody titers were associated with the risk of long COVID. The other thing that um, Danny Altman described a few weeks ago now was that there is a specific autoantibody that is only really prevalent in those with long COVID. Now, not everybody with long COVID had it, but it only appears to be um, present in those. And other people who had COVID but don't get long COVID don't have those symptoms. So they're the things that we know. Um, there, is, there are a few things that we're picking up from the epidemiological modelling. 
So, for example, when we look at the risk factors for long COVID, they are very different to the risk factors for actually having a poor outcome of COVID. So obesity, for example, doesn't feature. Um, Cardiovascular disease doesn't feature. One of the things that does feature, though, is atopy. So people who've had a history of um, eczema or hay fever um, or asthma, they are conditions that are associated with long COVID. And it is making us more and more convinced that this is some type of autoimmune process. Um, and I'm stressing some type of autoimmune process uh, because one of the things that has been looked at is whether those who had steroids have any different outcomes. And actually, there doesn't appear to be any differences in risk for developing long COVID if you were or you were not treated with steroids. So it's not a clear cut autoimmune disease in the same way that um, some others are, and that it does appear to be more complex. We're then down into hypotheses for how long COVID itself is being activated and how long COVID could be having an impact there. Um, So some of the things that we're seeing is um, that that, that we know COVID was affecting this ACE2 enzyme. And we know down the stream from that, the mitochondria are regulated through ACE2. So um, the ACE2 triggers ANG1 to 7, ANG1 to 9, which are the nonapeptide and septopeptide that are responsible for activating the mitochondrial assembly receptor. And that in turn trigger the whole host of antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and basically all round good guys for healing your body from the infection. If your ACE2 has been knocked out and your ACE2 continues to be knocked out even after the infection, then what we'd expect to see is the mitochondria unable to respond in the way that they might. Now, that may trigger them to go into its anaerobic pathways much quicker. That could account for why people start the day feeling fine, but actually very quickly have all the aches and the pains and the fatigue that you would normally associate with running a marathon. The other thing that we've seen is that the COVID caused these microemboli. It it disrupted the the microcirculation, the bit of the blood vessels that are deliberately that are responsible for delivering oxygen and nutrients to all of the tissues and removing the lactic acid, removing all of those harmful elements from you. We know that that caused an acute problem with the microcirculation. It is entirely possible that COVID uh, has caused that acute problem, but the body is not repairing itself as quickly as it might do. And that actually would account for why we are seeing uh, the slow repair, but people eventually are improving one way or another. Um, And there's a few other elements that are really interesting that do appear to be clusters of this. It's well established that there are family clusters. Um, There are parents who kept long COVID and then their children um, had very, very mild cases of COVID. Um, But despite that, ended up with long symptoms. And we are seeing long COVID in children as young as five. So this is all suggesting that there is another element um, going on here. How about the links to chronic fatigue syndrome? You all in, in the field have has had a 20 plus year head start in studying chronic fatigue syndrome, although it's been, I think, chronically understudied. And, and to my understanding, exactly what the underlying biological causes are still not clear. I'm, I'm wondering if the long COVID um, field and the chronic fatigue syndrome field have started to come together and compare notes to get an understanding of where these things are, share commonalities and and where they're different. What is the, what's the latest there? 
Yeah, the, it's, a, it's a really important issue because chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis, as you say, has been chronically underfunded. And um, even where it has been studies has been hit with major controversy. You'll be um, aware of the PACE trial, which was a study looking to find out whether behavioral therapy and graded exercise treatment was actually beneficial or harmful for long COVID. And that's a study in its own right that's been beset with controversy because of changing protocols, changing outcome measures, changing the the way that the analysis was done um, throughout the study. And um, we are left in a position that after that study, we haven't actually updated it. So the only thing we really know with chronic fatigue syndrome is that um, that for many people, if they go on a graded exercise treatment, graded exercise therapy, it actually causes detriment. That exercise is one of the very few diseases where exercise can be doing harm to patients. Um, and, and the idea for that, the thoughts behind that are basically if you exercise with chronic fatigue, you build up your lactic acid and it takes you longer to recover from that lactic acid than the benefit of the exercise that you've accrued, which means that you are actually deconditioning in all of your gaps while you are trying to get over the exercise that you've done. And the whole term of pacing has set about. And actually, that is one of the learnings that's been handed over to long COVID. In most of our clinics, we are running the service so that um, we actually actively encourage our patients not to try and go to their thresholds. If you go to actually the analogy we use is the, the old iPhone, you know, the, anyone who's got an iPhone, iPhone that's more than four or five years old, you'll know very well that the battery dies after about 15 minutes when you take it off charge. I've got one of those. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and what we know is that if you keep it constantly on charge or if you only use it a little bit, then recharge it, it actually works fine as a phone. But if you run it all the way down till the battery's empty, it takes forever to get the thing to reboot again when you plug it in and you you waste such a long time waiting for it to, to reboot and we are trying to encourage our patients to treat themselves in the same way they find out where their energy envelope is and as soon as they hit that you know that 20 percent barrier that you know, your battery's about to die that's the time that they need to stop that's the time that they need to rest and um, rather than pushing themselves and actually, over time, that 20% mark does move further away. But um, but sticking within that energy envelope is the key element there. Yeah, such a good metaphor, isn't it? Actually, with that exception, that's pretty much it. I mean, at the moment, we are about to start the first trials in the, the UK looking at what are the treatments for long COVID. We've got a great research program that's looking at um, what the underlying causes are. But we have just started our stimulate study, stimulate ICP, which is basically looking at integrated care pathways and looking at what treatments are offer. And the first three treatments that we're going to be trialing are three treatments that we've chosen from the chronic fatigue world. Um, it's aspirin, colchizine and uh, loratadine, uh, the antihistamine, that have been demonstrated to give some benefit to patients with CFS and ME. And so a plan is to try and find out, does that give you the same benefit elsewhere? And of course, the other thing we want to be looking at is to try and find underlying causes and look for similarities and differences between the, those underlying causes. I think one of the great examples of this is, uh, is the gold study there, the one that we're doing there, and the genetics of long COVID. 
Um, and a quick plug there, if you are, know anybody who's got it, just go onto the Sanogenetics website, look up gold, because we really want to find out what are the genetics. This actually comes back to the family clusters. If parents and children get it, that does suggest there's going to be genetic um, overlay. And there is another study that's being done in ME, um, Decode ME, that's being run by Action for ME, where um, I've been in a different hat on, I'm doing work there. And the idea is that Decode ME is going to be looking at the genetics of ME. With gold, we're going to be looking at the genetics of long COVID. And we should be able to see, is there any overlap? Is there a single condition here? Is there a single genetic predisposition? And it's really important to say that these two conditions are very similar in how they present. That doesn't necessarily mean they're the same disease. So it's really important that we establish, do they have the same underlying um, causes? And of course, the big, big problem with both of them, both long COVID and CFSME, is at this moment in time, we don't uh, have a test. We don't have any tests. And um, that's been a big problem when it came to um, CFS and ME, that it was grossly under-recognized because there was no test that says you've got it. It's the same with long COVID. Had long COVID been uh, had a blood test or a serum test in the same way that COVID did, we'd have been identifying it six months earlier. We'd have started the research program six months earlier and we'd be a lot further ahead. And hopefully having a genetic profile, having a risk score, gives us an ability to say, okay, these are the genes that have it. And actually, that's what the gene does. So our next step is we can start treatments based around that gene. And also we can start looking for the right test. If you go back 100 years ago, we didn't have a test for diabetes apart from tasting the urine. Now we have dramatic, we've got a whole host of um, uh, tests and whole ways of finding out what's going on. 50 years ago, there was multiple sclerosis that... Um, we were just getting a grips with that there was something wrong in the brain on post-mortem, but we didn't have a test that we could do in life until the MRI came along and the, and the, the antibodies against the myelin-basic protein. We're at that point today with long COVID. That, uh, the advantage that we have now is that we have the ability to do genotypes. We have the abilities to look at the metabolomics. We have the abilities to look at things that, Years ago, we didn't have. And hopefully, in the very near future, we'll have a test, a greater understanding of the disease, and then we can start treating it as a disease in its own right. I think you're absolutely right. And I'm, I'm also really interested from the genetics perspective. I was going to bring up the Decode ME project, actually, because I think it's a perfect example of where genetics may be able to point to some common underlying genetic cause. You also mentioned earlier the autoantibodies and autoimmune like signatures, the relationship with asthma, uh, we should if we should be able to see that from a genetic perspective as well through genetic correlations with um, genome-wide association studies in diseases like lupus or asthma or, or others that have autoimmune-like properties. So I, I think there will be some some interesting keys into the underlying biology. But I, I also completely agree with you that without a clear diagnostic biomarker or other strategy, it, it makes it really difficult. I'm curious what you see as the prospects for treatment on this. And these two are related because without great um, diagnostics, it, it becomes harder to develop treatments. But I'm wondering what you can see on the horizon. You mentioned a few earlier that are in testing uh, or going into trials soon. What, what do you see as the best case scenario there? Yeah, so the, the drugs that we're trialing at the moment are effectively, they are the sticking plasters. They are to help the underlying symptoms. 
Um, it, it's like taking paracetamol if you've got pneumonia. It hides the fever. It makes you feel better, but it doesn't change the underlying disease. But we're in a brand new era of diagnostics and a brand new era of therapeutics. Um, we are in an era of monoclonal antibodies um, being used for many different um, autoimmune diseases. But we're also in this position where we can now create mRNA strands that will help us develop proteins. One of the interesting observations that we've made is that um, we did a survey of a thousand people with long COVID and asked what was their response to their vaccine. And um, around two thirds of them showed uh, an improvement in all of their symptoms after the mRNA vaccines. Um, and this is something that has been pretty robust. But interestingly, people who have pre-existing CFS also showed that similar improvement. And that's hugely interesting because that's suggesting that it's not a specific vaccine that's doing it. It's not the vaccine that's specific to your infection. It's something about that vaccine technology and the spike proteins and something going on there in the interplay between the ACE2. What we can do, particularly if we find a good genetic code, particularly find which is the autoantibody, we could be in a position that we can actually genetically create the perfect antibody to your long COVID. We can then create a almost a bespoke individualized mRNA vaccine or at least an mRNA vaccine to the autoantibody that's affecting the majority of people. And going forward, we could be in this position that this is a testbed for many other diseases where there are protein deficiencies or where there are other elements that can be replaced by giving a single individualized bespoke monthly vaccine or annual vaccine or something along those lines. Um, and, you know, monthly vaccine sounds terrible, but People with diabetes are injecting themselves every day, five or six times a day in some cases. Um, the, the cost of these mRNA vaccines actually on mass production is working out about 15 to 20 pounds per head. And if you can get yourself back to school, back to work, back in your normal educational role, 20 pounds a month for a treatment that can effectively fix the underlying disease, that is a hugely cost effective treatment. Um, and these are the, the way the future holds. This is a really exciting time to be practicing medicine, particularly in the brand new disease area. Absolutely. I was listening to the CEO of Moderna on a podcast a couple months ago, and, and he was describing that their strategy in the near future will be to have annual uh, mRNA shots that contain multiple different viruses. So COVID, uh, maybe Epstein-Barr virus, maybe the uh, seasonal flu and actually just package that up into one thing that you got once a year. And I thought that was a really powerful view of the future and not having to have dozens of different inoculations all the time, but actually just a single annual shot that gets you. It's, it's almost, I think they described it like a software patch for the year. It's, it's in part really fascinating and part a little bit dystopic, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a great step forward. It is. And I, it's funny you mentioned Moderna because that's the, the company that had uh, have really bought into this idea of creating a long COVID vaccine. Um, regular conversations, they are really keen to know what we discover with our genetics and with uh, also antibodies because they are looking at this. and They're already looking at a trivalent vaccine for the, the next COVID booster. They're looking to find out, can they create the flu? And they've, they've actually imported some brains behind the, the different flu technologies to find out, can they develop a flu um, COVID combination 
vaccine. Um, I mean, it does come up against the issues around uh, original antigen sin. If you've got a um, trivalent or a quadrivalent vaccine, but one of those elements you've seen before and two or three others you haven't, are uh, we end up in a position where you could have the, the body will only respond to the one that it's seen before and ignore the other three elements. And this concept of original antigen sin is something that's going to take a fair amount of exploration. But if we can find a way around it, exactly as you say, we have your annual software patch that does COVID, it does flu, pneumonia, meningococcus, and all of these other things in one go on an annual basis. Next thing we know, we'll be vaccinating against diabetes or lung disease or heart disease. Absolutely. It's a brave and exciting new world. Well, thank you, David. I, I could do this for another hour, two hours. You're just a fount of knowledge on this. And I think we should do a follow-up in a, in a couple of weeks or months. Uh, it's, these things are evolving so rapidly. But thank you so much for taking the time. Um, if people want to find you, I know you're on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? Is it Doc Strain? Is that right? Doc Strain on Twitter, yeah. Or, um, I'm very happy to talk to people about these things. And as I say, um, we'd love to get people involved. So if you are listening to this because you are experiencing long COVID, then sign up for the Sanogenetics Gold trial. If you're listening to this because you're experiencing CFS or ME, sign up for Decode ME because this could be a route that we end up with a biggest data set and actually, I look forward to coming back and having a chat with some of the results as things get better. Absolutely. Well, thank you, David, for all your work on on the front lines and and from a research perspective. I know you've been uh, working very, very hard these last couple of uh, 18 to 24 months. I, I know you're giving yourself some breaks here and there, but thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Genetics Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you left us a review on your favorite podcast player, or even better, you can tell a friend who you think might like it too. As always, you can reach us anytime at podcast at sonogenetics.com. We really love to hear from you all about any feedback you have, guests you'd like to hear from, or topics that you'd like to see us cover in the future. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.